The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is July 28th right now, same, <laughs> like as, last, <laughs> same as the last episode because I am on vacation and I didn't feel like recording on vacation. Love you guys. Love doing the pod, but come on. I need a vacation sometimes where I'm not doing this. <laughs> I've had my turn. Now it's your turn. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't say last time, but I go to North Carolina every year and go to the beach, go to the pool. I got to get a tan before my sister's wedding. That's my goal. So that's why I'm really hoping <laughs> it doesn't rain. But actually, by the time this episode comes out, I'll be back because I just didn't want to record while I was there. So this will come out the week I get back. So, yeah, I hope I had a good time. <laughs> weather updates while you're there. Everyone will be everyone will be invested in the weather. <laughs> uh, pray, pray for sun. Um, but at this point, it'll be too late. <laughs> so... Anything new with you since last hour? Well, I would be back from my weekend as well. Hopefully that went well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think what else is happening. I th- if I, by the time this comes out, I think it'll be early August. So I'll be going to a ladies' day on the first weekend of August, which is a white theme party. So I've got two white dresses to choose from. I don't wear white because I'm filthy. I was say, I hate white. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, I reckon the second I put something white on, it somehow is dirty. Even before I've even done anything, it's just dirty. I have a hard time wearing white too because I'm pretty pale and like I don't know I feel like white only looks good on like certain people yeah I'm not one of them yeah so hopefully that will be fun um I'm sure it will be hopefully it doesn't rain I was thinking I might actually have to buy some gum boots which I know what what do you call them they're rain boots rain boots just like rubber rain boots yeah yeah just call them rain boots I was I was looking to buy some the other day and I'm like googling gum boots and it's like because that's what we call them here gum g-u-m boots and I was like why why everyone must call them something else (laughs) I know know in the UK they call them Wellington boots um weird yeah anyway (laughs) should be fun hopefully when this comes out it'll be I think it's the week of the eighth so yeah. I'll be closer to my sister's wedding. I got to plan my speech. I've been planning it in my head. I feel like everyone expects a lot from me because like I'm so amazing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I do feel a lot of pressure to like do a good job because people are like, she has a podcast. <laughs> but just because I have a podcast doesn't mean that I'm good at speaking. Like to It's a very different public speaking to just speaking on a microphone to a computer screen. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like I'm sitting right now in a closet really talking to no one because you're not even actually in front of me. It's just me and my cat. And then like whenever I tell people who like don't really know me or like don't know about me that like I have a podcast and have this like separate life, they're like amazed because they're like, you're like really antisocial. Like you moved your work desk into another small room to be away from everyone. I'm like, yeah, I did. (laughs) But here I am podcasting. (laughs) So if anyone wants to send some motivation or encouragement to me i'll gladly accept it you can message me on instagram someone might have some good speech tips yeah good speech tips send me a message on instagram i'll gather them short short and sweet that's my tip (laughs) 
<laughs> my tip is just get really really drunk before you do it no, i'm just kidding <laughs> there's nothing worse than a wedding speech that just goes on and on and on and on and on oh yeah no way those are the worst and i'm definitely not going to try to like be a comedian like i'll i'll try to be like a little funny but like the worst is also when people think it's like their stand-up moment no one cares about your <laughs> shitty jokes <laughs> Or like when you I roast to like the once. bride and groom too hard. That's so awkward. Yes. I went to a wedding once and the best man totally roasted the groom. But like, and I'm I'm all for jokes and all for fun. But this was like, oh my God, what is going? Like, yeah, that, that emoji with the teeth. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> like when <laughs> you're like, your tummy feels like nervous because oh. you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and everyone's like, ha, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's like, we're laughing because we're scared. <laughs> Mm. all right well straight into that's, it that's that we'll just get right into it now <laughs> just a <laughs> just a great segue weddings to <laughs> what we're talking about today is doe cases we did an episode on jane does and john does two separate ones this will be a mix um people seem to some people are really into doe cases i feel uh, like i like em and i'm not because like i the mystery of them and being like what could have happened and like you come up with all these ideas about like what their life could have been like and how they got there but then i also get frustrated because i'm like we're never going to get an answer and then the other frustration too is when you actually find out in the terms of you know someone like mostly harmless and you're like oh disappointing <laughs> <laughs> i was saying to you the other day now with these dna advancements it's almost you know a little bit it's sad or you know a little bit of melancholy that they no probably mystery. yeah there will never really be any true mysteries anymore once especially these things are picking up so quickly like one of the does we'll talk about today is like decades and decades old and it may have just been solved thanks to dna so um yeah it's still like obviously like uh, yeah i'm getting ahead of myself so i'll stop but yeah <laughs> <laughs> i did ask on instagram too if anyone could suggest some doe cases for us to discuss today so all three of these are actually suggestions from our instagram followers and i've made a highlight on their four doe cases so if you want to check that out please feel free and also send through any other interesting cases that you ever come across we love to and i keep a little kind of repository of them for future episodes um yeah, it seems like a lot of cases are being solved with DNA, like, over the last month. Well, even we've just spoken about Baby Holly and Annandale Jane Doe. There's heaps. Like, that's just two of the ones that we covered. And they're the doing, like, little. another push for John Bonet. Like, I don't know if that's yes. solvable, but. Yeah, that's an, maybe we could that do another crazy. episode on that. Imagine. That has to be surely the most well-known true crime case. Yeah. I'd say Delphi yeah, yeah. is catching up to it, but. Yeah. Whenever I see a um like a Reddit post that's like, what's the one case you like really want to see solved or one case that you like always think about or and it's the answer's always Delphi is like the top answer. Hmm. Maybe it's the Reddit demographic. Yeah. <laughs> like I feel yeah. like John Bonet happened a while ago now. Delphi is much more recent and probably more I feel like people the- kind of also may have just accepted at this point that John Bonet might never be solved. Because that's yeah. what it seems like. But now there's like a little hope. John Bonet, Casey Anthony. Like we, I reckon at least once a week someone will message us and say, can you do an episode on Casey Anthony? And um, Ma- Maura Murray. episode too. Yeah, Maura Murray. Yeah. Obviously she's missing so that can't be solved with DNA unless they find the bones. But anyway. Mm, we haven't done like a an older one for a bit. We'll mm. have to do one soon. Yes. Cause I'm, well, I guess this is an older one, but like an older like big case. 
I feel like too, I know we're getting off topic, but this is my last <laughs> sentence on it. I feel like too, with like the Maura Murrays and the John Bonet cases, they happened a while ago now, like most of them probably 20 years-ish. So they were covered so much, but it's kind of died off again. So it might be good to have a relook at some of the older cases, older, bigger cases. Yeah, I think that with all of them except John Bonet, because John Bonet every year there's at least 10 specials around the anniversary. Yeah, well, they randomly had a 60 Minutes um, segment. Oh, yeah. 60 Minutes Australia segment this last Sunday on John Bonet. And I was like, what? Like, I don't understand why they're doing an Australian segment. But anyway, like an Australian reporter went there and interviewed her dad and he said basically he wants to retest all the DNA and try and extract further DNA. So anyway, we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll get an answer one day. Hmm. If we do an episode on it, then we'll do it. We'll get the answer as soon as we're done recording. Yeah. <laughs> like Alan White. I still remember that. <laughs> Another one that there's been no updates on. <sighs> yeah. All right. Well, let's let's just like, get into the episode because we could just bullshit forever. Clearly. <laughs> even though we were even talking for <laughs> hours. <it seems>. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, like we said, this is going to be about some Jane Doe's and a John Doe. So the first one we're going to start with is the Artesia, maybe Artesia Jane Doe. Don't, like, message me angry. I'm going with Artesia. Um, So on October 26, 2020, a man who was hunting for quail in rural Graham County, Arizona, came across a black bag that he thought was suspicious. The bag was in a cattle float box. So obviously we had no idea what a cattle float box was. So we looked it up and it seems like it's like a trailer that's used to transport cattle. It's just kind of like exactly what you think it would look like. Like You a, would hook it up to the back of a truck or something like it's got kind like of a dividers. Metal box. Yeah, basically a metal box to transport cattle. I think that's wheels. what it is. That's what Google tells me. I don't know if that's right. If I'm wrong, tell me. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was um, just going to say to hunting for quail, I'm surprised it wasn't a mushroom hunter as usual. Mm. Quail's like weirdly also obscure though. Mm. So he called the sheriff and said that he believed that the bag may contain a deceased child. He thought that because there was toys near the bag that he saw. When police arrived, they quickly found that there was indeed a body in the bag. Medical examiner conducted an investigation and determined that the body belonged to a white teenage girl with light brown or blonde hair. The medical examiner said that she was likely aged between 13 to 17 years old and that she had died by a homicide. The girl's hair had been cut short and she was wearing some very distinctive clothing. So there's pictures that you can see of what she was wearing. One of them is like a skull cardigan sweater with a hood. And one is like just a black robe. It's like a black witch's outfit. It is. I think it is actually a witch's. That's robe. what I thought. But then it says robe. Like well, yeah, I like guess a witch's like, robe. I think like robe. Yeah, robe means in terms of the length of it too. Like it's looks like it would be at least mid calf. Like it's not knee length or anything. It'd be mid calf or maybe you know ankle length. But it's got mm-hmm. a hood. It's got like kind of things. I'm not really describing it very well, but kind of. It's hard to of describe because it's black, so you can't really yeah. see any of the details because it's all black. It looks. It does. Like if you looked at it, you'd say, "Oh, that is a witch's outfit." Like it looks like a fancy dress, scary black hood, long sleeves with kind of fabric hanging off them. Um, it kind of has like bell sleeves. It's not something that you'd say, "Oh, maybe that's an outfit," or maybe she was just wearing that. I feel like the only reason you'd be wearing that is for the purpose of an outfit, a costume, or like a robe, like almost even like a monk's costume, if that makes sense, like a long all-in-one, yeah. one-piece costume. We'll put, we'll put yeah. photos up on the blog anyway so you can see what we mean. Um, so the robe the, or costume 
whichever it is, it was identified as being from Walmart. Some comments online say that the skull cardigan could have been from Hot Topic. So as of July 22nd, the doe has not been identified. None of the toys that were found near her have been made public either. Because um, it's like if you, if she's, I guess, 13, still kind of young, but like to be carrying toys around seems like you're kind of older for that. So wonder what the toys were. Yeah, I'd love to know more, but they haven't ever said it. So um, investigators did eventually revise the age range to her of her. They said that she now could have been up to the age of 22, which would have been even more weird for her to have toys. There's some missing females that have been examined um, and excluded to being her. Um, one is Alicia Navarro, Serenity Dennard, Carly Gousset, and Riley Amaro. So some reports that we've seen say that the body was in a decomposing state, which would mean that she likely died a few weeks before October 26th. So like when you hear October 26th and like a witch's type robe, skulls, costume type thing, you think, oh, maybe she was like at a Halloween party or something. But then if she died yeah. a few weeks before, maybe not. I feel uh-huh. like like I've seen some comments say that she may have died around the end of September. Like obviously still not out of the realm of possibility for it to be a Halloween party, but maybe a little bit less unlikely. But some people also just like dressing for fall, like fall themed. Like you see girls on Instagram that get pumpkin sweaters, skull sweaters. Like as soon as it's September, it's like Halloween time. And it could have even been like maybe she just went to a costume party. Like like it feels like it probably is Halloween related just because of the theme, like the witches and the skulls and things like that. But, you know, it could have just been a normal costume party anyway. Yeah, I was going to say like or it might not have been a costume like to her. Like I've followed like Blackcraft and other clothing brands like that that sell things that maybe some people would think look more like costume-esque but some people yeah. kind of just dress that way like if they feel like they're witchy or something like that I feel so. like the cardigan kind of jacket thing with the skulls anyone would wear that it's just black and like looks maybe yeah. like it was either white or had some white or gray skulls on it you know and I feel like it's been sold when I was researching it's been sold at Hot Topic for many years so it's obviously quite popular it's just the robe yeah. is a little bit more unusual yeah, I'm assuming the cardigan was under the robe because the robe is yeah. big. Yeah, you would have thought so. There was this one comment on Reddit that says, I wanted to add that this is an aerial view of where Artesia Jane Doe's body was found. This is a hugely remote area, and it suggests to me that whoever dumped her body there was either a local or someone originally from that area who knew full well that this is out in the middle of nowhere. If it wasn't for that quail hunter, it might have been some time before her remains were found, if they were ever found at all. I honestly can't say because I'm not a cattle rancher in Arizona, but I don't imagine anyone would be going out there all that often, aside from occasionally checking on the water situation. Yeah, I'll put the photo up on the blog, um, but it is very remote. It's kind of just looks like there's a lot of brush and like a dirt, maybe a dirt road. I don't even think it's a gravel or a you know tar road. Mm-hmm. It's just dirt roads with nothing there, just scrub and brush. Um, yeah yeah so I feel like that is definitely true they obviously went out of their way to dump her there I also don't get why they don't like they as in authorities or whoever we also don't know how she died that either right because they they said it was a homicide but that's it they haven't said anything else like if you're trying to identify her like I get keeping some things close to the chest to like for the investigation's sake but like at this point we don't even know where to start and like maybe more people be able to help somehow like i feel like maybe she was transported there in the cattle float box um hmm. but yeah it's weird yeah, who did the float box have a license plate probably not 
It's, um, yeah, I don't know. Or, yeah, I don't know how it works there, like a registration. But then the other thing with the toys is maybe it makes me think, like, and obviously this is just speculation because I've got no idea, but maybe she was disabled or maybe she had kind of a mental age not of her actual yeah. age. So that could explain why. But then it doesn't really, like, and maybe it explains the robe and dressing up and things like that as well. But then it's like. Know. I'm assuming she wasn't found there, like where she, her, like, I mean, like where her body was, like, I don't think whoever killed her found her there originally because it's in the middle of nowhere. So whoever killed her would have had to bring these toys along also and then dump them with the body. Unless they were like something small that was in her pockets. There is kind of an interesting little side story which I don't think is probably related but I guess you never know someone on reddit said that they zoomed out of the map of where the dough was found and there's a monastery quite close to it it's called I'm probably going to screw this up but it's called the monastery of saint Piusus. um and that there's some photos online of the I guess um it says it's an Ethan orthodox christian's women's community which follows the rule of serbian monastic life founded in 1993 and basically the sister it's a it's a female monastery and the women it consists of 20 sisters so there's a photo of them online and they are all wearing black robes which is kind of interesting but i feel like it's not the same type of thing um yeah you know it could be and i just wanted to mention it just in case it ends up being that and that has been floated around i'll put the photos of the monks and the women up on the blog but um yeah i don't think like they are wearing you know floor length black long robes but i feel like this is not really related yeah weird Hmm, very strange i think it's unusual like this case was suggested a few times and i think it is because of the robe and the kind of um, clothing that was found with her that makes her stand out a little bit more yeah next one we're gonna talk about is a little different it's got kind of like a weird twist to it because they have actual photos of the child so they have pic- real pictures of this person but still she don't was alive yeah who it is so this one is about the oplica jane doe um, the remains of this little girl were found behind a trailer off her street in alabama on january 28 2012 an anthropological study was conducted on the child's bones, and the findings suggested that she was abused and malnourished prior to her death and placed her time of death between 2010 and 2012. Police believe that she was killed in 2010 or 2011, though. They believe that as part of the abuse suffered by the child, her left eye was injured at some point. This left her blind in that eye, and the scarring would have been obvious to anyone who came in contact with her. Um, so you could tell in the the pictures like you can see what they mean like her eyes a little disfigured it looks kind Um, of like yeah like I don't know if it's yeah you can definitely tell like you wouldn't think oh maybe there's something wrong with her eye you can definitely tell that she had an injury or something wrong with her eye yeah sergeant white who worked on the case he said based on feedback from experts we believe that she could not see out of her injured eye and that the injury could have occurred months to a year before her death this information is vital because we know that the injury was visible to anyone who interacted with the girl and may play a crucial role in identifying her so obviously like it's something that was would make her more memorable to people like yeah that she had this um like disfigurement on her eye um, so after this info came to lay, I guess that did kind of work in a sense because photos of the child at a local vacation Bible school emerged. 
the photos were provided to police by a teacher at the Bible school. And police believe that the child in the pictures is the Oplika Jane Doe, but they've still never been able to identify her. So you could see in the pictures, she there's still like blurry kind of like one she's like one kid out of a whole group of them zoomed in so it's not the greatest pictures but i feel like if you if you knew her you would know it was her in these pictures and there's pictures like there's two different kind of pictures which i'm assuming means from two different days so she was there regularly it seems one picture she's wearing a pink t-shirt and it's kind of a picture of her side profile whereas the other one she's wearing like denim overalls or dungarees whatever you guys call them with a t-shirt underneath and she's got like a lollipop in her mouth Mm -hmm. so um, yeah, I feel like absolutely, if you ever came across this child, you would remember her. So this info is from missingkids.org. It says, the images were taken in the summer of 2011 at Greater Peace Community Church, located just three miles from where Oplika Jane Doe was found. So since they were 2011, clearly she died after that. The sergeant said, we know there are people who have information about who this child is. We've tracked down tips from across the country and now believe that she may have ties to the Orlando, Florida area. We won't stop until we can give this little girl her name back. She was just a little girl. She deserves dignity and a proper burial. Um, So in 2020, police released enhanced images of the Jane Doe to the public, making her scarring more evident and kind of making the picture a little more clear. Because like I said, the original ones are pretty blurry. Um, they said they've since been enhanced to bring out a clear image of the little girl. The Bible school teacher who first brought them to police believe the enhanced images does depict a better likeness of the real little girl. So the enhanced one, like I said, it's just more enhanced. You could see what her eye like injury looks like a little bit more clear. Her facial facial features are a little bit more clear. Um, you could definitely see more so what she looked like. So I'm sure you are wondering, just like us, if we have pictures from the Bible school that the teacher gave, how do we not know who she is? Good question. Apparently, no records of the attendees were kept in. Nobody remembers her name, which is crazy. Like, I guess since it seems like a little kid's school, but like, you don't keep records of who went there? Yeah, it's so strange. Maybe, maybe they burn them after like 10 years or something. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, like I, I was someone else messaged and I'm like, I bet they keep records now mm-hmm. after this. But yeah, it's very sad that even no one to even remember like her first name or, you know, I guess they encounter so many children. But yeah, it's very sad that she just absolutely slipped through every single crack. Yeah, it's like can't see Maybe there's, like, other pictures from that school year where they have, like, their little names on the wall that you could zoom in on. Like, that could point you in the right direction. Like, you know, they put up those little name tag things. Sometimes these kids are just hidden away and no one, maybe really, no one really did have any interaction with her apart from yeah, this Bible school. Yeah, maybe she didn't go, like, that often. Like, not every day or, like, I don't know if it was, like, a school school where you have to go every day. Or if it was more like a daycare situation or maybe she went sometimes. So isotope testing was carried out on this Jane Doe, and based on the findings of the testing, it's thought that the child was native to Alabama or its bordering states, including parts of Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, or South Carolina. So a big area. Um, The location of the remains indicated the individual or individuals who dispose of the body were familiar with the area and most likely native to Oplica. The level of lead isotopes also suggested that she was between one to three years old and that she may have lived in an area where she was exposed to high lead levels before moving to a location where there was no lead exposure. Um, 
A pink shirt with long sleeves and a ruffled neckline with heart-shaped buttons was found near the remains. The does featured in some of the reconstructed pictures wearing a pink shirt, but it's never been confirmed that this shirt actually belongs to her. Um, so there is a picture of her wearing a pink shirt with a ruffled neckline, but I think it's a short sleeve shirt. Yeah, it's a short sleeve shirt, that one, but maybe a similar shirt. The one the picture looks like has butterflies on it, maybe. Yeah. Um, there's two missing females who have been ruled out as being Oplika Jane Doe. There's Jesse Shockley and Angelica Cassandra Livingston, um, who people thought maybe could have been her, but it's not. The Oplika police captain, Jonathan Clifton, said this is the most heinous case in my 20 years where a child was abused and neglected and then dumped. It's very emotional for all of us detectives. Um, captain Shane Healy said she was badly abused and lived a tough life, and there's nothing fair about what she had to go through at all. We hope we can give her a small amount of justice if we can find out her real name. And there's currently a $20,000 reward being offered in this case. Um, contact your local law enforcement if you have any tips or ideas as to who this child was. Um, like pictures could, will be on the blog. So, DNA could definitely help in this case, you would think. Yeah, Surely. they have it. I'm assuming they kept some. And they know, yeah, you'd think so. I know I've read like in some things that they found her skull and I don't know what other remains they found, um, but you would think surely it's a Well, yeah, fairly... I guess if they did all that isotope testing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And surely they should be able to get some DNA from that. It's fairly recent. So, mm-hmm. yeah, very, very sad on that poor little kid, just abused her whole life and then no one has no claimed one her. remembers her. Hmm. It's very sad. All right, so the next case we're going to cover is one that was, has been sent to us a lot of times. Um, I feel like I personally don't always find the historical cases the most interesting and engaging just because there's probably not as much evidence available. But when I started digging into this case, it is so fascinating. It's absolutely mysterious. It dates all the way back to 1948. It was a real, real cold case, um, and it's the Summerton Man or the Tamam Shud case. So, um, and of course, just as a little preface, 1948, and I did the notes, and it's like the day after I did the notes, this may have been solved. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's always the way. But anyway. We got to do John Bonet next. (laughs) It's such a fascinating story. It's definitely worth telling it no matter what the outcome ends up being. But still, even if they solved it, it's really cool that they solved it. Exactly. So this story kind of starts on December 1st, 1948. A man was found deceased on a beach in Summerton Park in South Australia. Police were contacted by a member of the public at 6.30 a.m. on that day. The dead man was found lying on the sand with his head resting against the seawall. His legs were extended and his feet were crossed. So just to kind of give you uh, more of a picture, the seawall is basically like it's an actual wall usually so it's kind of like he had his head up against the wall almost as if he – like, you know, when you sit up in bed, that's kind yeah, of like he was most, lounging. Yeah, basically. So his body would have been – his legs and, you know, would have been horizontal but kind of an L shape. Yeah. So he hadn't washed up on the beach. It's thought that he died while sleeping, which would explain the resting position that he was found in. An unlit cigarette was found on the right side of his coat. When police searched his belongings, they found an unused second-class rail ticket, which was from Adelaide to Henley Beach, and a bus ticket from the city, which also may have not been used. They found a metal comb that had been made in the USA in his pocket, along with half an empty pack of juicy fruit chewing gum, an Army Club cigarette packet, which contains seven cigarettes of a different brand, and also a quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. 
So witnesses had seen the man on the day before his death, which was November 30, and they came forward. One couple said they saw him at around 7 p.m. kind of in that same area on the seawall and that they saw his arm move. More witnesses said they saw him from 7.30 to 8 p.m. that he did not move at all during that time period. They thought he may have been drunk or asleep, so they didn't really think anything of it and didn't you know, offer any assistance. There's a pathologist in this case named John Burton Cleland, and he said the man was of, quote, Britisher appearance, and he seemed to be aged around 40 to 45. This is his description of the man. He was 180 centimetres or 5 foot 11 tall with grey eyes, fair to ginger coloured hair, slightly grey around the temples, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no signs of manual labour, big and little toes that met in a wedge shape like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes and pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore shoes or boots with high heels and performed ballet, which probably would have been quite unusual at the time. Yeah. Um, Anyway. The man was dressed in a white shirt, a red and white and blue tie, brown trousers, socks and shoes. He also wore a brown knitted pullover or sweater and a fashionable grey and brown double-breasted jacket. The jacket was said to have American tailoring, but all labels on all the clothing had been removed. No hat was found with him, which was unusual for the time period, and there was no wallet found either. He was clean shaven and there was no form of ID with the body. They conducted an autopsy and his time of death was estimated to be around 2 a.m. on the 1st of December. I wrote 2022, which is not right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So his time of death was estimated to be around 2 a.m. on 1st of December, 1948. This is kind of some of his autopsy results. It says the heart was of normal size and normally in every way. Small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. There was congestion of the pharynx and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle. The stomach was deeply congested. There was blood mixed with the food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, around three times the normal size. He had also suffered acute gastritis hemorrhage, excessive, extensive congestion of the liver and congestion of the brain. So it sounds like there was a lot going on within his body when they did the autopsy. Yeah. The man was found to have last eaten three to four hours before his death and his last meal was a pasty. Further testing failed to reveal any other foreign substance in his body. The pathologist who conducted the autopsy autopsy was a Dr. Dwyer, and he said, I'm quite convinced the death could not have been natural, and he suggests that the man was poisoned. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. Um, Even though the man was thought to have been poisoned, they didn't believe that the pasty he had last eaten was the source of the poison. Authorities embalmed the body on December 10, 1948, and they weren't able to positively identify him at that time. A few weeks after the man was found, on January 14, 1949, staff at a railway station in Adelaide found an abandoned brown suitcase. It had been checked into the luggage hold at the station at 11am on November 30, 1948, and the label on the suitcase had also been removed before it was checked in. It's believed that the Summerton man was the one who checked that suitcase. They looked in there and they found a red checked dressing gown, a size 11 red felt pair of slippers, four pairs of underwear, pajamas, shaving items and brown trousers that had sand in the cuffs. They also found an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife that had been sharpened into a weapon, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, 
a small piece of zinc that they thought was used as a cover for the knife and scissors, as well as a stenciling brush, which may have been used on ships to stencil cargo. Random. <laughs> yeah, yeah, random. They also came a thread across a thread card of Barber brand orange wax thread, and this brand was not available to buy in Australia. The thread had previously been used to repair the lining of a pocket in the pants that the man was wearing when he died. Just to kind of as a side note, this is so much investigation back in 1948 and 49. Like imagine trying to track down where this thread was made with no internet, you know, probably not much phone access. It's just like a massive amount of work. Even though it's taken so long to potentially solve, it's still like crazy the amount of stuff that they were able to figure out because it does seem like all over the place, cross countries, random shit everywhere that they were all able to connect back to him. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, all ID forms and all the clothes had been removed, but police did find the name T. Keen, K-E-A-N-E, on a tie, Keen on a laundry bag, and also Keen, but K-E-A-N, I've read that that one was spelled, on an aft- on an undershirt. There was also some dry cleaning marks on the clothes, Pl- like as in, you know, numbers, when you put your clothes in for dry cleaning, they put a little tag on there. Mm-hmm. Police believe that whoever removed the labels missed these items or purposely left them on there in an effort to mislead them. There was still rationing happening um, after World War II at the time and clothing was said to become difficult to come across. When people would buy secondhand clothing, they would often remove the tags from the previous owners, um, which maybe was kind of a possibility for why the clothes had no tags and that was floated around. Police thought it was strange though that there was no spare socks found in the luggage, but they did find pencils and unused stationery. They investigated and found that there was nobody from any English-speaking country missing with the name T. Keen, Um, and they also tried to investigate the dry cleaning marks but couldn't really get anything from it. They did discover that one of his coats had been made in USA and the coat had never been imported into Australia, so the man either had to get it when he was in the USA or he had to buy it from someone who had been there. I wonder how they even find that out. Like, Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so police believe that the man made his way to Adelaide on the overnight train from either Melbourne, Sydney or Port Augusta and they believe he showered and then shaved and caught a bus to Glenelg. The coroner conducted an inquest into his death. The coroner's name was Thomas Erskine Cleveland and he said that the man's shoes were very clean and appeared to have been polished right before his death. He floated the theory that maybe the man had been dumped on the beach and he also said that this would explain why there was kind of no vomit or excrement or anything found at the scene, um, even though he may have been poisoned. Um, there was a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Mel- uh, sorry, University of Adelaide, Cedric Stanchin Hicks, and he said that, that there were drugs that would be extremely difficult and maybe even impossible to identify in a body after death. The drugs he was referring to are digitalis and urbane. So they were kind of the poisoning drugs that were thought may be responsible for his death. The coroner said that he thought poisoning was the probable cause of death. He said, I would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside and that it was not accidentally administered. But I can't say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person. So even though he thought that was probable, he didn't rule on a cause of death at that time, which coroners here often do that. They will say it's likely that this happened, but they will not confirm it as the cause of death i feel like we talked about it once before where they said it's easier to change if it's like listed as unknown or whatever versus like being wrong yeah yeah like, some, like undetermined 
Yeah, it's weird here because they do whole coronial investigations and then they'll still yeah. often say undetermined. I'm like, well, what was the point? <laughs> Why are we wasting yeah. our time? Anyway, um, interestingly though, which is kind of, this is the more mysterious part of the mystery, is that at the time of the inquest, a tiny scrap of paper was found in the fob pocket of the man's pants. The words Taman Shud were print- printed on the paper. Taman Shud is a Persian phrase meaning is over or is finished. The scrap had been torn from the last page of a copy of the Rubaiyat by Omar Khayyim. I hope I'm saying his last name right. Which was a tw- <laughs> he, he was a 12th century poet. So there's actually photos online of the little scrap of paper. It's um, printed in kind of a, I don't know, an unusual font. I'm guessing probably, you know, Persian type font. It looks like Arabic-ish. Yes. Like what you would imagine yeah. that to be. Yeah. I'll put it on the blog anyway so you can have a look. So this is also crazy back for this time. Police launched a public appeal to find the copy of the book that the scrap of paper had come from. A man came to police with a 1941 edition of the Rubaiyat, which had been published in Christchurch in New Zealand. It's not entirely clear how the book was found. One newspaper article says that the book was found about a week or two before the body was found. Former South Australian police detective Gary Feltis said that the book was found, quote, just after the man was found on the beach at Somerton. Um, he said the timing is significant as the man is presumed to have arrived in Adelaide the day before he was found on the beach. If the book was found one or two weeks before, it suggests that the man had previously been there. But most accounts that I've read do state that the book, which is so mysterious, <laughs> was found in an unlocked car um, parked on the Jetty Road in Glenelg, either in the rear floor well or in the back seat. This information about the discovery of the book comes from a website, allthatsinteresting.com. It says, in December of the previous year, he reported he had taken a drive with his brother-in-law and parked a few hundred yards away from Somerton Beach. When they returned to the car, his brother-in-law noticed the copy of the Rubaiyat on the floor. Both men had assumed the book belonged to the other. So they just got in the car and there's this random book there and they just thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, Very strange. Yeah, so like, did someone just put it in the car? That's what the assumption yeah, is? And it wasn't all- either of theirs? <laughs> That's what it sounds like the assumption is. So weird. And then how would they even know to look at it? I don't know. Hmm. Just so weird. Like imagine if you got in your car and there was just a random book and you're like, oh, where did that come from? That's a bit creepy. Yeah, I'd, I'd freak out way more than they <laughs> appeared to. Yeah. Um, the theme of the Rubaiyat is that one should live life to the fullest and have no regrets when it ends. So due to kind of the theme of the book, this led to police speculating that he had taken his own life by poisoning. In the back of the book were faint indentations representing five lines of text in capital letters. The second line has been struck out, which is a fact that they consider significant due to its similarities to the fourth line and that it may represent an error in encryption. There's actually photos online of the, you know, the words, so I'll put it up on the blog, but it's basically just a bunch of letters. The first line, all in capitals, says W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D. The next line, M-L-I-A-O-I. Well, I won't read it all out, but I'll put it up that's on the, the blog. And the second sorry. line is the one that's like crossed out. The the third line actually. So a oh, fourth line, sorry. So there's three lines and then there's one that's got an X through it. If Can you say what I mean in that? If you yeah, in the picture down. it looks like the second line's crossed out too. Oh, yes, it does too actually. Like, I thought that was maybe an underline. Yeah, unless it's an underline. Yeah. All the letters so you, are in capitals. Yeah, and it's just scribbled like 
you know, it's not neatly, super neatly written or anything like that. Um, but just, I guess, another facet of mystery to this case. So in the book, it's unclear whether the first line begins with an M or a W. It could be both, I agree, but it's um, widely believed that the letter is a W because he has written an M in other places and it's quite different. Yeah, it's literally like the two lines with like a squiggly kind of in the middle. So Yeah, like it's got quite long the letter, the bottom of the letter is quite quite long for a W, but yeah, it does look different to the other M that he's written. Yeah. So there's a lot of analysis about um, the letters. I'll I might make an Instagram post and I'll put it on the blog too, so you could let us know. You know, people have analysed it basically to the last tiny little detail. Yeah. Many code experts over the years have tried to crack the code, but no one has been successful. In 1978, following a request from ABC television journalist Stuart Littlemore, the Department of Defence in Australia had cryptographers analyse the text. They reported that it would be impossible to provide a satisfactory answer. So, And they also said that the text could be the meaningless product of a disturbed mind. I don't even get, like, I know that's like a thing that people do, like code experts and stuff. It's like, where do you even start? Like, I don't understand code breaking at all. I just don't get that there would be so many codes these days that would need to be cracked. <laughs> I guess, yeah. like, you know, in, in during the, you know, early, you know, 1900s, that when that was how people had to communicate. But now there's just so many more sophisticated ways to do it. I just can't believe that there's still a market for it. But maybe there yeah. is. I'm just like, where do you, I have no idea where you even start because there's like no context to anything. So I don't know. I don't get it. One other interesting piece from the book is that police found a phone number in there. The number belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Thompson. She's known as Jo and she's also referred to, I believe, as Jeston in the media. The woman had been born in Sydney in 1921. Jessica lived in Mosley Street, Glenelg at the time the Somerton man died. Her house was around 400 metres or 1,300 feet from where his body was found. Police interviewed Jessica and she said she did not know the Somerton man and had no idea why her why his <laughs> she had no idea why her number would have been in the book. She did say though at some point late in 1948, an unidentified man attempted to visit her and asked her neighbour about her. In 1949, Jessica asked police not to keep a permanent record on her and she asked that any of her personal details not be given to any third parties. She said it would be harmful and embarrassing for her to be linked to the case. Embarrassing. Yeah. Police showed Jessica a plaster cast that they'd made of the Summerton man, which depicts his face. You may have seen this. It's kind of very publicised if you've ever followed this case, but it's basically just a exactly that, a plaster cast of him. She told police that she couldn't identify him, but there's a detective, Lean or Leanne, who was working the case, and he said that her her reaction upon seeing the cast, she was completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. In an interview many years later, Paul Lawson, who was the man who made the cask and was present when Jessica viewed it, said that after she looked at the bust, she looked away and would not look at it again. Jessica told police that she was working at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney during World War II and that she owned a copy of the Rubaiyat. But she told them in 1945 she'd given her copy to an Australian Army lieutenant called Alf Boxall. She said that she moved to Melbourne after the war ended and got married. She said that Alf had written her a letter and she wrote back saying that she was married and basically you know, terminated the friendship or whatever it was. What's up with this book? Am I dumb for like never hearing it before that all these <laughs> this people is... have it and like pass it around maybe it was a big 
I don't know. I don't know. I've never read it either. I might have a look into it after this. Yeah, they're like, oh, well, I have a copy of it, and I gave it to so-and-so. They're like, well, we found a copy in our car, and we didn't think it was weird. <laughs> so police then kind of began to investigate that the dead man was this Alf Boxer who she'd given the book to. But they tracked him down in Sydney in July 1949 and he was alive and well. He still had his copy of the book and the words Tamam Should were still in there. So Jessica died in 2007. Her daughter Kate did an interview in 2014 with 60 Minutes and said that she believed her mother did know who the Summerton man was. He was eventually buried in 1949 in Adelaide's West Terrace Cemetery. Flowers eventually began kind of mysteriously appearing on the man's grave and they tried to track down who was leaving them, but they were never able to confirm who the person was. Police questioned a woman named Ina Harvey at one point too. Ina had been a receptionist at the Strathmore Hotel, which was located opposite the Adelaide Railway Station. She said that a strange man had stayed at the hotel for a few days and had checked out on November 30, 1948, which was the day before the man died. She said he spoke English and only carried a small black case. An employee randomly and for some reason apparently looked in the case and found a, quote, needle. So I'm assuming this kind of goes along with the poison theory. So one of the main theories over the years, um, which we won't go too much into now because I feel like it may be a bit redundant, but it was interesting to mention, is that the man may have been a spy there were two sites near Adelaide that were apparently of interest to spies back in the day. They were the Radium Hill Uranium Mine, at mine and the Woomera Test Range, which was a military research facility. The man's death also coincided with the reorganisation of Australian security agencies and the year after he died, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO, was founded. There was kind of one more theory about the code that he had written in the book or it's presumed he had written in 2004 the retired detective gary feltis said that the final line which i'll just read out the letters there's a lot of them but i-t-t-m-t-s-a-m-s-t-g-a-b could stand for the initials it's time to move to south australia mosley street which i think is probably a reach but anyway it's interesting (laughs) that's where jessica lived the woman lived in mosley street you know, but like, I there's guess. still more letters. That's only like half of it. There's still a couple yeah. after that. Yeah, true. And true, why would you so. write that in code? And, and yeah, what, I wonder what the rest of the letters are meant to mean. Yeah. Um, there was a 2014 analysis by a computational linguist named John Reeling, and he said that the theory that the letters consist of the initials of some English texts, but he couldn't find a match for these in a large survey of literature, and that he thought the letters were likely written as a form of shorthand, not a code, which is why no one's ever been able to figure it out. So the South Australian Police Historical Society still has the bust that we mentioned of the Summerton Man, which also includes strands of his hair. The formaldehyde that was used to embalm him in 1949, though, is said to have destroyed much of his DNA. In May 2021, so just last year, the Summerton Man's remains were exhumed after years of legal battles regarding the process. <clears throat> the remains were deeper, buried deeper in the ground than the authorities thought. They wanted to take DNA from the remains. There's a uh, forensic scientist called Dr. Anna Coxon. She said the technology available to us now is clearly light years ahead of the techniques available when the body was discovered and that they would test using every method at our disposal to try and bring closure to this enduring mystery. So that was kind of where we were going to leave this episode at the time until just this week when I still can't (laughs) believe it. It's, It's crazy. On July 26, 2022, so literally just a few days ago, Adelaide University researcher Derek Abbott said he believed he had discovered the identity of the Summerton man. 
He said the man is Carl Charles Webb, who was a 43-year-old engineer and instrument maker. Welcome back. Turning now to a breakthrough in one of Australia's most enduring and haunting mysteries, an Adelaide researcher claiming he's identified the Summerton man as Carl Charles Webb. Yes, he's from the University of Adelaide. Professor Derek Abbott has dedicated more than a decade of his career working to identify the Summerton man. He has cracked the case and the professor joins us now from Adelaide. Derek, good morning to you. Congratulations, I believe, are also in order. This has been a long time coming, but finally, you've given us some answers. Good morning. Yes, that is incredible. So tell us what you found. So we found the man's name is, uh, well, he was born Carl Webb, but uh, went by the name Charles Webb. He was born in 1905 in Footscray, Victoria. And uh, in the 40s, he lived in South Yarra. Um, And... uh, we found uh, his occupation was an instrument maker and uh, yeah he basically falls off the radar uh, around 1947 we can't find any documentation or uh, information about him at all this info about the discoveries from abc australia He said after using hairs from a plaster bust of the man to gather DNA evidence, researchers in Australia and America had further narrowed the search to build a family tree containing over 4,000 people. He spoke to the ABC, as in Professor Abbott, and said that the final pieces of the DNA proof came into place, triangulating to Charles Webb. Apparently, Charles was born in Footscray in Victoria in Australia on November 16, 1905, to Richard August Webb and Eliza Amelia Morris Grace. He said their investigations had also found a link to the name T. Keene, which was printed, you know, on all these things that we mentioned earlier. The professor said, it turns out that Carl Webb has a brother-in-law called Thomas Keene who lived just 20 minutes drive away from him in Victoria. So it's not out of the question that these items of clothing he had with T. Keene on them were just all hand-me-downs. He said that there was a potential explanation as to why the Summerton man was in Adelaide. He said, we have evidence that he had separated from his wife and that she had moved to South Australia, so he had possibly come to track her down. Professor Abbott also has spoken about the DNA, you know, tests and things they did to find out who the Summerton man was. They used websites like Ancestry.com to find his distant relatives. He said, the first cousin we found was on his paternal side and the second one we found was on the maternal side. So it's a triangulation from two different, totally distant parts of the tree that's very convincing. He said he had tracked down and spoken to Carl Webb's living relatives. He said, I've spoken to them, except they're all of a generation well below him. None of them knew him and there's no photos in their old family albums or in their garden sheds, unfortunately. I'm hoping as his name gets out there that someone will have an old photo album somewhere. So at the time of recording, which is 29th of July Australian time, the police haven't made a comment on this um, alleged discovery. So that's why we're saying it may have been solved. I feel like it probably has been if he's used these DNA advancements and technology. Well, and also um, like the Tiki and stuff like really makes it seem like how he had like a brother-in-law and that was like on the clothes that he had. Like what are the chances of that too? Yeah. And like when you Google Summerton Man or Tamanshug case, like all the articles, mystery of the Summerton Man identity sold after 73 years. Summerton Man identified as Melbourne electrical engineer. So I just like, I feel like it probably is solved. Hopefully we will hear more concrete evidence soon. 
Um, but even if it's solved, there's still so many questions. Like, I know. how did he die? Did he kill himself? Did someone kill him? Why was he on the beach? What was the code? What's with the stupid if, book? If Jessica knew him, why did she mm. pretend she didn't? Mate, like, I don't was think. Was she having an that, affair? Yeah, I don't think they were married from what, like, I don't think she ever married a man called Carl Webb, but I guess she could have and we just don't know. Um, yeah, it's very, so many questions. Why did he remove all the labels? <laughs> how, like, how That's did like he get the poison? Other... Who poisoned him? That other Jane Doe case where they thought she could have been a spy that we did in the first episode we did, um, she took all the labels off her clothes too, the yes. one that had like the bullets in, in the briefcase. Oh, yeah, the one in Oslo. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I, I, I just, I still, even though they've got a name, I still have so many questions. <laughs> I don't yeah, know like if I'm not, ever be I'm still not satisfied. <laughs> How dare they not solve it for us? I know. Um, but I feel like in this case, it's, very different to um, ones of the same generation because there was so much work has been done mm-hmm. over the past 70 years and crazy, crazy levels of investigation. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so um, I don't really have a theory. I, I I was going along with the spy theory for a while. I thought that seems definitely plausible. That would explain why there's all this mystery, um, you know, kind of the codes and things like that as well but now it seems like maybe he was just an engineer I still want to know more about why they thought he was a ballet dancer when it seems like he probably wasn't it just seems like he wore tight shoes yeah wore tight shoes shoes that were too small for him or something like that there is an interesting article I've read which is kind of about the use of the technology in other cases and there's a professor called Dr. Xanthi Mallet and she says the uptake of genetic genealogy in criminal cases has been quite slow in Australia in comparison to the U.S. She said certainly in the U.S. every week they're getting a cold case solved from investigative genetic genealogy. If they don't get a cold case that's 30, 40, 50 years old every week they're a bit disappointed. I think it's certainly something we could encourage the use of in Australia because it's a fantastic utility and it obviously raises a lot of issues um, you know which we can maybe go into in another episode in terms of the use of DNA. But, yeah, it's definitely interesting and seems to be increasing in the use of cold case closure. Yeah. I was thinking, like, maybe maybe he, like, committed suicide and knew he was going to commit suicide and maybe just some people, like, want to leave clues and be mysterious and be like, people are going to try to figure this out and they won't be able to because it all means nothing. Because <laughs> even with the, the Annandale Jane Doe, the sister was like, yeah, like that's just who she was. She would have wanted to leave all these like weird clues that people could never figure out. Yeah, just to, yeah, I guess. Because here we are still talking about it all these years later. 73 years later. Yeah. I did actually see while we we're recording, there has been a little statement made by the South Australian police They were that says they're cautiously optimistic. It says, <laughs> we look forward to the outcome of further DNA work to confirm the identification, which will ultimately be determined by the coroner. So... Mm. I feel like if they've done the most of the hard work for the DNA, surely it shouldn't take that much longer to actually identify him. Yeah. But, yeah, it's crazy. I just can't believe that's solved. But we still have many questions. <laughs> many, many questions. <laughs> um, so everything for the, all these cases, all the pictures and everything we talked about, the pictures of the girls' clothes, the pictures of the Oplika Jane Doe, like the actual pictures of her. And everything will be on the blog at truecrimesocietyblog.com. You can follow us on Instagram. That's where we kind of post the most um, at True Crime Society. Hopefully at this point we're not shadow banned anymore. But if we are, just make sure to type in the full 
name True Crime Society. You can follow our personal accounts. Mine's Steph Sum underscore and Olivia's TCS Olivia. You can find them both in the True Crime Society Instagram bio. As always, if you could leave us a rating on Apple, Spotify, anything that's a big help to us. Share the podcast. Um, that's big help to us as well. Post in your Instagram story. We love that because it's an easy, free way to help us get the word out that there's this great podcast that people should be listening to. <laughs> um, and check out any of our sponsors if any of them are interesting to you. But otherwise, I think that's it. Same stuff, different day. Let us know your theories on any of these cases too. I would like to hear them. Yeah, definitely. Especially the the witch one. Yeah. If anyone could find out anything about the the robe or the clothes. Um but yeah, thanks for listening. Talk next week. Peace out. See ya. <laughs>